We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is Michael Brown, director of the Defense Innovation Unit, who's leaving after a pretty successful tour, DIU, and he'll give us his insights on how to move forward in streamlining the defense process for acquiring innovative technology and some other ideas on investment innovation. So, Michael, thank you for being here today. What's uh, what's up at DIU? What's the future for DIU here? Well, we've probably never had more activity underway. Uh, DIU, uh, we now have 75 projects underway. We started half of those last year. Uh-huh. Uh, we've completed probably on the order of about 30 projects at this point. So our momentum is continuing. We're doing a lot more. There's probably never been a higher demand for what we do at DIU. At this point, we've completed 43 what we call transitions. Those are capabilities that get to warfighter's hand, and that's our principal metric at DIU. If it doesn't get into warfighter's hands, uh, we're not satisfied. We're not here to just do demonstrations and experiments. Those, in fact, are now on our website so that anyone across DOD who wants to see what solutions are already uh, tested and available can see that. And it also provides a great example of the breadth of things that we do do at DIU. Give us some examples before you go Great, uh, yeah, some, some examples would be uh, small drones. Probably one of the things we're most well-known for is a program we call Blue UAS. So that means how can we source small drones? The military calls those Group 1 uh, UAS, which basically just means small size. Right. And uh, those are equivalent to what we'd see as consumer drones that we could buy off uh, any e-commerce platform. Is this so, like Skydio and people Yes, like exactly. That? So we took a... Army program of record called Short Range Reconnaissance. We qualified five drones for that. Skydio, in fact, was the one that was selected. But uh, the other four who performed well, a few a few fell out along the way, but the other four who performed well, one of which is in, from an allied uh, country from France, they're now on the GSA schedule so that anyone across DOD or the federal government can buy those. The NDAA prohibits a DOD from using Chinese drones or drones with Chinese components. So another part of Blue UAS has been making sure there are components that are U.S. or allied mm-hmm. uh, for important components like the flight controller. So that's one example of uh, a few projects that we've done at DIU. We've introduced quite a few cyber tools for U.S. Cyber Command. In fact, General Matasoni just talked about one recently, Hunt Forward, that provided uh, capability to conduct cyber operations. He was uh, saying we could just work with Lithuania. And doing that space mm-hmm. portfolio uh, has been very active. We've pioneered launch as a service. So rather than the government owning its own rockets, of course, these days, how can we just buy a payload that's going up? Small satellites, CubeSats that can be launched in those payloads. And in fact, we've pioneered the technology of synthetic aperture radar, which is what we're seeing in a lot of the images that uh, are coming back to us from Ukraine. Yeah, so I now, saw that. Those uh, images are being purchased as a service. Again, the government doesn't need to own the satellites. 
or the rockets. We just buy the data as a service. Uh, and that's being purchased now by the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, and supplied both on the high side and the low side so that uh, others can see that uh, not just Ukrainians and UCOM, but uh, information has been shared with the press so we can see what the movements are. I spent two and a half years of my life fighting over whether we could have commercial SAR. How much does this cost? Oh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the pricing, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't have that at my fingertips here. But it's very cost effective relative to you know, what, uh, what we've done in the past. The, you know, the cost of getting payloads into space has come down 95% yeah. uh, in the last, uh, last few decades. And of course, these uh, CubeSats are available for tens of thousands of dollars instead of you know, millions of dollars. So it's, it's very cost effective. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. For government satellites. Yeah, that, yeah. that are, uh, uh, you know, very high capability optical satellites mm-hmm. in geo orbit. Neat. What else? I mean, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty big spread right there. Energy, uh, we're us. working on, uh, I, we'll fill our whole time with this, if you'd like. No. Uh, on the energy portfolio, which is a brand new portfolio at DIU, we're working on a project called Tactical Vehicle Hybridization. Uh-huh. Imagine all the Army vehicles that are out there. None of them have battery power so that when they're idling, they're using gas. So one of the things that the Army has done a study of is saying that 80% of the time that Army vehicles are operating, they're idle. I mean, they're not going anywhere, but they might be keeping uh, keeping our soldiers warm or performing some other function. So in those cases, we're able to use battery power. And so we're retrofitting all of those Army vehicles, and it's been expanded uh, expanded to uh, Humvees now, JLTV. So quite a few vehicles now are going to be able to be upgraded using a kit so that there's a, a hybrid source of power. We use battery when we're idling, and then of course gas when the, uh, the vehicle's in forward motion. How does, this, how does this fit into the fast follower strategy that you've been pushing? Well, these are all examples of commercial technologies that the department needs to be much faster in adopting. In fact, that's why DIU was formed by Ash Carter seven years ago. He saw that the traditional acquisition system Mm-hmm. which is rooted in a requirements first, then we acquire, and of course we need budget to correspond with that. That's a 60-year-old system, and uh, we could argue about how well it works for buying fighter aircraft or aircraft carriers, and I've got some thoughts about that, but it doesn't work at all when uh, we're working with these commercial technologies, which are produced in much higher volume, and the rate of product introduction is so much faster. So whether you're talking about satellite imagery Digital wearables will tell us whether we're getting sick before we feel symptoms mm-hmm. or um, batteries that we might need to buy for retrofitting vehicles, as we're talking about. The system doesn't work. First of all, we don't need requirements. So a 10 to 20 year process that the military goes through to tell the market what to build is completely unnecessary. The market's already built it. We just need to get on with assessing uh, that technology. Second, we need to use these more modern tools of acquisition. The Congress has done tremendous work over the past uh, few decades working with DOD so that we can have additional capabilities for acquiring. DIU's benefited from that. We've pioneered some of the methods. We use other transaction authority and something we call the commercial solutions opening process. It's something we invented. It's uh, geared to commercial assessment and procurement, very flexible in terms of its uh, IP and allows you to go fast. So contrast that with the federal acquisition regulations. 
So if more folks are using that, we can go faster on the acquisition side. Uh, what we do need help is budgeting. So it takes three years to program a dollar of expense, a dollar of spending at DOD. What we need in the budgeting process is basically to recognize these commercial capabilities are what we're going to need on an ongoing basis. So think about small drones or satellite imagery. <clears throat> I don't need those once and, and then buy from the same vendor and same capability for 20, 30 years. I need to know I've got a stable budget for that capability. And then I need to constantly assess and refresh rather than fielding old technology to our warfighters. So if we were able to think about these as capabilities of record, where maybe satellite imagery, mm -hmm. uh, small drones, digital wearables, we had a budget for those <clears throat> that was not tied to a specific set of requirements and vendor, we could then make sure that through a competitive process, we're maximizing the competition, we're able to assess the best in the market and then field it quickly. And uh, using these methods, we could field technology within one to two years, not one to two decades. So I think this is really a key aspect to enable modernization in the DOD, that we become a fast follower to the latest technology that the commercial market is producing. How much money are we talking about when you would do this? What, how much would you? Pretty small dollars because uh, really if you think about, let's use small drones as an example, you could with a budget of probably on the order of 10 to 20 million a year, you could be qualifying. You could set up the organization that has center of expertise and qualifying those drones and, and getting those out to the field. Really, ex the expending that we're talking about here is really just what you'd need to give to the vendors who have produced new products that you would then evaluate. So it's some budget for the people in the testing. That's part of the function that we do at DIU. And then money to go to those vendors to participate in the prototyping process, which, which really is a testing process. Yeah. No, I actually have a Skydio drone, right? You can't see it. It's to my uh, left here. Uh, that they gave me to play with, but I haven't taken it out of the box. We Phenomenal capability. Yeah. And hey, it, it doesn't crash, which is a big improvement over our previous drone here. Well, it's, it's great to see that there are kind of a resurgence of these small drone manufacturers in the U.S., of which uh, Guideo is an example, because the first generation really has gone out of business. Intel, yeah. GoPro, and they went out of business because the Chinese are subsidizing this, and the Chinese suppliers have 90% global market share. What's happened as a result of Blue UAS and uh, the Congress telling the DOD they can't buy these drones is market share for DJI, the world's leading producer of small drones from China, in the US has gone from about 75% down to 54%. This is an important dynamic for an industry who's providing capability we're gonna need in war fighting. We can't have those supply chains going through, the, through China. What would you need in terms of legislative change for this to work? I mean, I assume that would be the crux of the matter. Not too much. I think most of this, the department could do on its own. We could figure out where do we need to buy these technologies. We've got to form that organization. It doesn't need to be the same organization across all these technologies. You could have a different mm -hmm. center of excellence for small drones than you would for digital wearables, as an example, or commercial satellite imagery. So you'd place those where their natural home might be. And then that work could be done uh, you know, without, without any new authorities from Congress. What we would need from Congress is the flexibility to create these capabilities of record. Again, they're probably not big dollar items, but it'd be a different way to budget than we currently do 
when we send so many line items um, that are very specific over to Congress and then they weigh in on each one. So we'd have to get away from the, I've got a specific program that I'm gonna fund for a few years to, you know, this is an ongoing capability I need and there's gonna be recurring funding for that that the department's able to count on, but it allows us to refresh that technology on a frequent basis, basically on the same time scale that commercial companies are producing new products. What I hear though from your customers is there's uh, not about DIU, but in general, there's a resistance in DOD to move to this kind of acquisitions. What do you well, think the source of that is? I wouldn't say uh, there's resistance to it. I think the, there's a lot of inertia to change at the Pentagon. And so I think just making sure that these ideas are out there and giving them a fair hearing and then uh, for us to consider changing. Um, I'm frustrated that the Pentagon can't move more quickly on uh, something that seems pretty straightforward, frankly, obvious uh, to me. Mm-hmm. I'd say what I've, I've observed over my time at DIU is that uh, from a resource allocation standpoint, we are way over-invested in the discovery process, kind of the science and technology community, and mm-hmm. under-invested in deployment. So how do we get capabilities, especially commercial capabilities, uh, to the field? So that comes from a time, you know, many decades ago when most of the technology that the Defense Department needed, we developed ourselves. If you go back to, uh, you know, the, sure. the height of the Cold War, the space race, uh, we developed the semiconductor industry because we needed semiconductors. Now we're buying 1% of the world's semiconductors. So it goes back to that time. We haven't really changed that perspective to say that, gee, a big proportion of the resources we allocate at DOD needs to be focused on technology we bring in, not just technology we invent. As a result, it shouldn't be surprising that there's no process for bringing in that commercial technology. We actually need a complementary process like fast follower strategy to ingest these commercial technologies rapidly rather than the mindset of we tell the market what to build, it builds it, and, and we adopt it at our own pace. The other uh, worry that I have with commercial technology is we don't control its rate of global diffusion. So whether it's small drones or the satellite imagery we talked about uh, using synthetic aperture radar, that technology is available to adversaries. So uh, whether it's ISIS buying you know, uh, small drones off the internet and sending a grenade over to, uh, to kill our forces in Mosul, to our adversaries also taking advantage of these satellite images, since we're not in control of those, we could be at the effect of them, and we don't want to be in a disadvantage relative to these commercial technologies. I think Russia probably wishes they'd spend a little bit more on investing in some of the high technology capabilities that Ukraine is using against them. As we're watching warfare change before our eyes, Russia fielding a 20th century uh, industrialized force, and the Ukrainians are bringing a lot of new technology to bear some of these same technologies we talked about, advanced communications technologies, satellite imagery to target where they're seeing uh, Russian convoys and tanks, autonomous systems that deliver destructive capability to to tanks and so forth. So the warfare is changing and we've got to make sure that uh, we in the military keep up with the latest capability. How much does uh, DIU think about that when they design what they're acquiring? The fact that it's not always clear to me that people have figured out that UAVs and PGMs and some of the other new capabilities really have changed warfare in a way that puts some of the big 20th century platforms at a disadvantage. 
how much of that thinking drives your think your your approach? It it definitely drives our approach. Uh, if you think about it, China is really taking advantage of all the elements of their society to field their force. Modernization of the PLA is a very high priority. And of course, they're using a strategy that uh, you and I know, civil military fusion, to make sure that any advance in their commercial capabilities is uh, transferred to the military. And that happens by fiat in, in China. We, we can't do that in the US. I'm not advocating for their system. But we do need to make sure that we are aware of commercial technology improvements and how will that affect uh, war fighting and potential concepts that we would use in, in a conflict. I think we need to be doing much more of that. In fact, I've worked with uh, Admiral Lauren Selby, the Director of the Office of Naval Research, to really author something we call a head strategy. So if you think about it, we are over-invested in the Defense Department in our large, exquisite platforms. Think about you know, our submarines, our carriers, our F-35s. So we have some incredible capability in those platforms, but our adversaries, in some cases, have stolen those platforms, China has in particular, and they've certainly studied our concepts of warfighting, our, what the military calls TTP, um, techniques, tactics, procedures. So they know how we're coming to the fight. And what we need to do is introduce both an element of surprise and hedge, this is where hedge strategy comes from, hedge the amount of investment we have in the large platforms with what we call uh, small, unmanned, many, and smart sensors. So basically complement those. I'm not saying we don't need those big platforms. We do, they're fantastic. No one uh, can field anything like what we have in the US. But if that's all we do, we might be surprised by some new concepts, some asymmetric capabilities, which is really what China has spent their time doing as they've studied the way we go to fight. And uh, we could do that by experimenting with these new commercial technologies. So there's a couple of elements to the head strategy. First is this concept that we need the element of surprise. We need something to complement. Second is the emphasis on speed. You don't know when we'll be called to the next conflict. So we need to be fielding capabilities in the next one to two years. It needs to be a premium on getting that capability to the warfighters quickly. Uh, when I spent time with Admiral Aquilino, uh, at, uh, he's the commander of Indo-PACOM. He was very focused on the fact that I need capabilities one to two years, not 10 years. Don't tell me about a S&T project that's going to deliver a new capability that's beyond the horizon I'm thinking about. And then third, this architecture of small, unmanned, of course, which gives you additional capabilities you can have with manned platforms. I need many because quantity is a quality all on its own. You can see that if you think about teaming drones as a concept and everything is a sensor. So every piece of gear that we feel could be providing increased situational awareness uh, so that we can make optimal decisions. So that kind of architecture that would drive what we would be fielding in this head strategy would really give us a lot of additional capability. Some of that the military is thinking about now, I think that's incorporated in the JADC2 concept. There's a tremendous effort of work that's going on in the Navy now called Task Force 59, fielded by the Fifth Fleet. That's experimenting with all forms of autonomous capability, mm -hmm. underwater, on the surface, and in the air. So uh, we need more time experimenting with these new technologies, developing those new concepts. But if I look across DOD, we have that, too much of that is the exception rather than rule. We're uh, still investing so much in the large platforms and not enough in these newer capabilities. 
How much do you track what other countries are doing? And not just China. I mean, the people I look at now the most are the Turks when it comes to some of the UAVs. They've done, uh, they've done some pretty neat stuff. There's no question about it. The thing about commercial technology is uh, it's proliferating across the globe. Mm. And adversaries who are fielding much less capable militaries have access to this technology. And you gave a great example. I mean, the Turkish drones that were used in the recent conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan was decisive. So we've got to make sure that we are not only aware of these technologies, but also experimenting with them ourselves. Um, I think this concept of teaming drones is one that we're way underinvested in in the, in the military. One of the things that companies will say, though, is they're afraid they're making a commercial product. They're looking at a global market. And they're afraid that if you take like the smart device that goes on your wrist and spray paint it green, call it a military item, that they'll be caught by uh, export controls. Is, is that really something you think about? I mean, I'd, I'd give them a pass. There's, maybe there's a way around it, but that's, that's one of the fears that inhibits pursuing the DOD market. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to be working uh, closely with the Commerce Department to make sure that commercial companies are not penalized. If we're using the same uh, capability that uh, is in one of their commercial products that's already something we would be shipping around the world, uh, I think that's a pretty easy case. That's the case of the digital wearables. In fact, the project that we did on digital wearables, the secret sauce is really in the algorithms that we're able to use that ingest the data from these. Uh, digital wearables. And that tells us uh, the key information about whether we're going to come down with something. In other words, a digital watch and a, a digital ring on my finger can feed 160 different types of data into an algorithm. It's the algorithm that will, will really ensure that, that we're catching infectious disease before we feel symptoms. So, so that's uh, an example of where it would be used by the military, but there's certainly no need for any export controls. It gets a uh, little more complicated when you're talking about uh, something like small drones, yeah. um, which can be used uh, you know, for offensive capability. But satellite imagery is, a, is another good example to talk about where we were trying to control that early on. Yes. But if we've got adversaries around the world who are fielding the same technology, there's really no reason for that to be uh, in an export control situation because we just harm U.S. companies that are producing it. So I actually wrote the rules that uh, allowed the commercial sale of imagery and then was chairman of the Commercial Remote Sensing Advisory Board. And DOD almost always laid across the railroad tracks to slow everything as much as possible and would argue with, you name it, and they were against it. Has that changed? I, I really couldn't speak to whether it's changed, but I think you make the great point that when we're talking about commercial technology, dual-use technology, we need to be really careful especially when these are proliferating around the world, no matter what our export control uh, approach is. So the last thing we want to do is limit our own, company, our own company's ability to sell around the world. I think we've been a bit late to the party on fielding U.S. sources of these satellite images uh, for that reason. Other countries took the jump first uh, and started providing that capability. There's still time for U.S. firms to catch up, but it's a it's a good example of the point you're making. We need to make sure that if it really is commercial technology, it's being fielded by other companies around the world. The last thing we need is restrictions on U.S. companies of selling that data. So maybe um, this is a little more philosophical, but one of the big differences was attitudes towards risk. 
and you probably see a lot of that being out in the Silicon Valley area is that if you're very risk averse, the idea of you're going to gain more from letting the technology go and having U.S. companies lead, then you're going to lose from adversaries maybe having access. What do you see on the attitudes towards risk? Is that changing when it comes to technology and acquisitions? Or? Well, we do have a, a bit of a dichotomy, as you're pointing out, uh, between the military's view of risk uh, and what we see in commercial companies. Commercial companies are taking risk all the time, uh, and that's why we see companies failing. But on the military side, I think we have to recognize that if it's specifically military technology, munitions, okay, there's a... Mm one regime that we have in place. If there really is dual use technology, a completely different thought process. And we're not as good at dealing with that complexity of we need different thought processes for where some of these technologies are. The technologies we're working with at DIU by and large, dual use, commercial, and we really shouldn't have export controls around them. One of the things that was in the fast follower strategy that kind of relates to this is you, you said we need to coordinate with allies. And that's always tricky. It works sometimes, but what were you thinking when you, when you put that as, as part of the strategy? Yeah. I think part of what's changed in the last 60 years is uh, we're not the source of all the technology uh, innovation happening around the world, far from it. You gave a great example about Turks and uh, small drones, but there's, there's countless examples of this occurring right now. 1960, the U.S. Defense Department and, and companies working with it, Defense Primes, were one-third of global R&D. And today that number is a little more than 3%. So there's a lot more technology developments happening commercially. We've talked about that already today. But there's a lot more happening globally and a lot with our allies. We've talked about China as an important source of technology innovation. Uh, they want to displace the U.S. as the technology superpower. Their plans are pretty clear. Fortunately, there are other countries that are great sources of technology that are our allies, whether it's Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, UK, Canada, Australia. So we need to be uh, not so myopic and make mm -hmm. sure that our, our aperture is wide open for technology being developed in our allies. And what I would love to see is, for example, at DIU, we should be sourcing technology from allied companies as well as our own and seeing who has the best when we do a project and we're seeing who has the best small drones. As I mentioned, we did that to include other countries' drones, in this case, uh, a French company, Parrot. But I'd like to see for every project we do much more outreach to allies so that we can source their technology. And when we qualify that technology, it's tested and proven, we should be selling those solutions back to allied militaries. That would be great for export uh, sales for uh, the companies that we work with. And fantastic if it's an Australian company that provides something that uh, we can sell back to the U.S. military. One of the companies that is providing that launch as a service capability is Rocket Lab uh, from New Zealand. So we have done about 16, 17 contracts at DIU with uh, allied companies, companies uh, producing technology in allied countries. Mm -hmm. But uh, this isn't a, we don't have the budget or the mandate to really do that on a a widespread basis. I think we would be better off if we did. Uh -huh. And so the mandate would be from DOD, not from Congress. Right. One thing we haven't talked about is SIBR, uh, right? And there's a couple things we could talk about, but is that eating the, is that sort of like the Empire Strikes Back and it's, it's the program is eating, eating some of these more innovative approaches? 
Well, uh, I think we need to just put Sibbers in context. What I mean by that is back to the comment I made before that we are way overinvested in the discovery process. The department has, in my view, a lot more emphasis on Sibbers relative to other types of programs than it should. So Sibbers comes to us because, of course, the Small Business Administration puts a tax on all the R&D that DOD mm-hmm. does. That tax is about 3%. And so you end up with about $3 billion of SIBR funds that are awarded each year. I think that's fine as far as it goes. Maybe we talk in a minute about what should change about SIBRs. But if you think about it, that $3 billion of R&D funded by SIBR programs compares to $300 billion that's spent by venture capitalists each year developing new technology. So for my money, I'd like to see a lot more of DOD's emphasis, uh, leadership attention, programs developed for influencing the $300 billion that private industry will spend developing technology and figure out how we get access to that. Now, that's what DIU's mission is, but we're very small relative to that investment. And what we've been able to do is influence probably half a percent of DOD procurement. So I'm very pleased with the progress we've made at DIU. In fact, now we're starting to follow the additional contracts that companies we bring in see. And just give some numbers on that. We've, well, in an era where the defense industrial base is shrinking, uh, the department has commented on that. And recently, the Deputy Secretary of Defense has commented on that. There was a report that done by industrial policy shows that you know, many fewer vendors available to DOD. We've introduced 100 new vendors and we've tracked how much uh, business they, they are getting. And it's on the order of $4 billion. During that time period that we've introduced these vendors receiving that order of procurement, DOD's probably purchased one or one and a quarter trillion dollars. But it means that overall, despite the progress DIU is making, we're not changing the composition of the vendor base in its totality. And we're still concentrating our buying on the large platforms that we talked about before. And of course, that all goes to the primes. So we need to think about what's happening with these efforts to one, access that 300 billion of investment that venture is making. And number two, for those companies we bring in, are they getting any more share of the pie? So those are things that are not working in the system that we have today. They can work if we change our emphasis, but uh, today it's just too small to make the kind of modernization changes that, that we need to make. So SIBRs have a role, but let's not make them the total role. If we focus everything we're doing on SIBRs as that's the way to bring department capability, uh, we're really missing a boat. And most VCs that we would talk to would say, a SIBR counts for nothing in terms of a company's valuation or their view of the venture capitalist view of whether the, uh, the company who received the silver award has really progressed its efforts to deliver a long-term recurring revenue military customer. Uh, and that's because we give them out with a lot of frequency and very small dollar amounts. So a number of folks have called for reform, maybe even getting rid of the so-called phase one where you give companies $50,000, a complete waste of money. We should immediately go to what's called phase two, $2 million grants. So fewer grants to really invest in a much bigger way in some capability that we're going to need. $50,000. It's what? $50,000. Yeah, $50,000. 
uh, the, the rate of getting uh, cyber funded companies capability into programs of record or ongoing capability for the military is actually quite small. Yeah. Only 7% of companies that receive SIBRs go on to receive any venture capital. So we're funding a lot of very small operations for the most part that don't make it into helping the warfighter. So then you have to question how, how effective is that? Yeah, I'm not sure any of the startups I follow would be thrilled to get $50,000. Uh, and if you've got great opportunity as a startup company, your venture investors will tell you steer clear of Sibbers. Yeah. So uh, I'm not opposed to Sibbers. Uh, yeah. I think they can play a role. I think we could do make some changes to improve the Sibber program, but let's not lose sight of the much larger amount of private investment that's occurring. That's what we need to access to improve the military. What would you do to make that change? What What would you, like just what are the three or four steps you would say we need to take? Well, on the cyber program, we've already talked about a couple of those, right? We need to, yeah. fewer of the phase one, which is really kind of a spray and pray approach yeah. to more concentrated investments. And then we need to start tracking how many of those investments actually deliver capability to the warfighter. So at at DIU, we're using RDT&E funds. We're not funding anything with SIBR dollars. Mm. We're tracking that very closely. So our rate right now is 45% project that we start that results in capability of the warfighter. That means the technology work, production contract is in place, and the budget is there so that capability can be scaled. I think we need to be using a, a standardized metric like that that's really measuring the outcome rather than so many of these intermediate process metrics the SIBR program measures transition as did any follow-on dollar of funding occur in a future SIBR grant or did anyone add any dollars to that? Okay, fine. And as far as you're measuring, did the Oops, seed grow, but you're not measuring, did the capability get to the warfighter team? So then what I would do to complement this is we need to really think about how do we expand what's happening at uh, DIU. It doesn't all have to happen through DIU as an organization, but we need much more access to that capability that uh, uh, venture capitalists are developing. So the scouting function needs to be bigger. We need to be doing more projects. We're budget limited on the number of projects we can do, but if we were able to do more projects across DOD, we could bring in more of that commercial technology. And if we had implemented the fast follower strategy, as an example, that would very much widen the the door so that much more commercial technology could be adopted rapidly. So with a series of really pretty easy things uh, to do, we'd be able to understand what the commercial technology development uh, landscape looks like, access that and ingest that at DOD. That's what would help us modernize so much faster than we're going today. We've talked a little about this in the past, but would DIU work better if it was more like a venture capitalist or if it had, if it was more like a VC firm? I mean, and there's mixed reactions to that. So I don't know what you're thinking now. Yeah, I don't think we need to be acting as a venture firm and investing in the companies. In fact, one of the misnomers about DIU or less understood aspects is we're providing revenue contracts to companies. We're not investing in those companies. So the, the government has no ongoing risk of investing in something that doesn't work. Um, we're only purchasing those things that have been proven through testing. Vendors only get paid when they meet uh, milestones that we prescribe. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very low risk strategy to bringing technology in. I just think we need to be doing it on a much bigger scale. And then uh, the department needs to be making sure there are larger production contracts 
available to those vendors who come in. Good example, Andrel, a vendor that we brought in, and now has a follow-on contract for a counter uh, UAS or countering small drone system. And that contract is a billion dollars from SOCOM, Special Operations Command. Well, I should be able to give you 20 examples of that instead of just one. That's the biggest one that I know about is the following contract for a DIU vendor. Another vendor, C3, which is an AI platform, now has a $500 million contract ceiling from Missile Defense Agency. But this needs to be happening on a much bigger scale. As we do that, we create more incentive for the venture capitalists to not only invest in the companies we're bringing in, Anderol or C3, but in make more investments in new companies that can supply our capabilities. That's the flywheel I envision getting going uh, that will make sure that we've got a much broader vendor set working on defense needs. We're not dealing with just a shrinking fly base and we're ingesting commercial technology much faster. Again, capability that we can feel in one to two years, not one to two decades. So I'm gonna ask you to put your previous hat on and talk about Chinese investment, which seems to be unsurprisingly it evolved to avoid some of our efforts to restrict it. So where do you, where do you see Chinese investment in the Valley? And I can probably give you a couple examples of successful acquisitions they've done. Yeah, I think the good news is that uh, we are a lot more aware today than when, uh, you know, others and I started working on this uh, four or five years ago. Mm. So awareness is way up. Uh, unfortunately, according to some data from Bloomberg and the Rhodium Group, Chinese investment from a dollar standpoint in U.S. technology has not declined at all. So while the total foreign direct investment of China in the U.S. has come down dramatically on the order of 90 percent, uh, that's because they're investing a lot less in real estate, hotels, movie chains, <laughs> the capital controls that China has placed on those companies is probably the biggest factor. Uh, that has reduced uh, Chinese FDI in the U.S. So that, that hasn't been a reaction to what we've done at CFIUS or elsewhere. Yeah. China's decided it doesn't want so much of its currency coming to the U.S. So on the technology side, when we look at the, you know, the dual-use technologies that we're concerned about because they're of national security interests, so whether it's AI or cyber or autonomous systems, China is as active as ever. The market has actually grown for those technologies. So if the dollar amount is the same, the percentage has come down a bit, but they're still very active in our markets, our early stage venture markets. Yeah. What would you do about that? Would you uh, ban them? Would you, I mean, this is a big issue on the Hill now. I like the uh, increased emphasis that CFIUS has. I don't think that uh, they've probably been as aggressive as they could be in looking at transactions and frankly, going back and denying some transactions, even in uh, looking in the rearview mirror, which they have the power to do, a few of those actions would be chilling for, uh, for both US companies thinking about taking Chinese investment and, and for the Chinese investors themselves. And then we could be a lot more aggressive if we look at what the Commerce Department could be doing as well. I think they've been reluctant to, to take any steps there. At the same time, there's been a lot more work that's been done to place companies on the entities list. So yeah. uh, we're making a couple of steps forward. We're just not taking all the steps that we, we potentially could. Okay, so what have we missed? What do you want to say here as, a, as you think about your time at DIU? I mean, I think I was in the room when Ash Carter announced the creation 
Uh, you might have been on stage too, but no, I was I wasn't on stage. In fact, I was uh, leading Symantec at the time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but looking speaking of looking in the rearview mirror, what what's your what's your prognostication for DIU? What would you want to see? So I think the good news is uh, that Ash Carter really was on to something when he created DIU. And of course, he created several other entities at the same time, Defense Innovation Board, Defense Digital Service. And I'm glad to see that those also have, have uh, continued on. They, they can all provide some ideas and capabilities for DOD that, that was not happening before he created those. I think what we've been able to show in the seven years since Ash Carter created DIU is that it has tremendous value and we can scale it. When he created DIU, there was really not an operational concept or construct for, okay, how are you going to accelerate the adoption of commercial technology into the military? In fact, he envisioned that if you hear him talk, he will talk about a bridge. We need to create a bridge, which he viewed as a scouting function. And I think uh, I give credit to my predecessor, Raj Shah, for recognizing that the bridge didn't have enough value to the commercial market and you actually need to provide contracts that come through these projects that we talked about to give the economic incentive for the commercial market to care. That I think is a enduring concept. We've expanded on that and figured out how to scale DIU. One of the things that I changed was uh, giving us our own acquisition or contracting capability so that we weren't a very low priority on somebody else's list. We could actually be responsive so we could award contracts in 60 to 90 days We've now written over 300 of those. That being able to work at commercial speed and the terms that commercial companies are finding easy to work with is really a key ingredient behind getting more and more commercial companies to come to DIU as a storefront uh, uh, to to a DOD. So as I look back, I think there's been some tremendous progress made. But relative to the challenge, we haven't made nearly enough. So I talked about the fact that we're not influencing very much of DOD procurement. We're continuing to try and change that. Just this year, there's meetings that DIU is having with all of the program executive offices, the folks who are doing the uh, mainstream procurement for DOD. That's a connection that hasn't been made before. So there's many more things that we can do. Also in the macro sense, as we talked about already, we need to think about this allocation. How much resource are we putting on the discovery versus deployment? DIU is all about deploying capability. So more sure. resource and more programs there and more budget. You might know that DIU's budget was cut 20% this year. Not because somebody said, that's not a good idea. I want to take that down. I call it benign neglect. Nobody paying attention because our budget is so small. Our, our budget uh, this year is $33 million of RDT&E. So it's just so small. No one's paying attention to that. In the, yeah. Scale of an eight hundred billion dollar DoD budget. A couple of years ago, it was zero point zero point five percent. So you're saying it's gone down? It's gone down from twenty one, where we had some great support from the Congress, to twenty two, which was done as part of the omnibus bill rather than the defense specific bill, and we got lost in the, the shuffle there as you know Congress moved expeditiously to try and get a budget in place before the half year mark. Right. The budget was almost a half year late, as we know. And in that process, we were not able to get people to focus on something as small as DIU. So our a small scale uh, works to our disadvantage. And frankly, I think we need a lot more emphasis on how do we bring in commercial capabilities than DIU is able to do. That's why we've been talking here about a hedge strategy. That needs to be a strategy that DOD embraces and fast follower strategy. So more of that 
of those ideas that we incorporate will put a bigger spotlight on the kind of things we're doing at DIU and proliferate them across the department. We never want to be a choke point. We want to be an enabler showing the way and have other folks incorporate the best of, of what we're doing. Some of that's happening. The commercial solutions opening process that we invented, I see being used around uh, DOD. It's just not used widely enough or on a broad enough scale to make the difference we needed to make. So you don't see DIU as the place where all this would happen. You see it as sort of the... No, it's too small. Um, I think it's a great place for a lot of it to happen. I'd like to see us be able to do more projects than we're doing. But frankly, I'd like to see our interaction with our DOD mission partners, the rest of DOD, expand so that they also are incorporating some of these same techniques. One effort we have underway to accomplish that is we started this year the Immersive Commercial Acquisition Program, ICAP. And that really is meant to bring people in. We're going to try and bring in some of the best agreements officers from each service. It'll be small. Yeah, use too small to do anything bigger, but uh, we're going to be bringing in on the order of six to eight contracting officers. They'll spend a year with us learning how we operate and then take and they'll work on projects for their service. So if it's an Army contracting officer, they work on an Army project. And then they go back to the Army. So in that way, we've expanded in a small way, but expanding the number of people yeah. who have familiarity with you know, some of the best methods we've pioneered. We're uh, starting this program in cooperation with the Defense Acquisition University. And I'm really excited to see what it could do if you put that in motion and, and see what happens 10 years later. Yeah, they're a good group to work with. So I think that if I was gonna sum it up, I'd say you've pioneered a lot of great things and it's now it's our job to bring scale to them. That's exactly right. It's a very good summary, yeah. yeah. To, to modernize DOD, because it's a very large uh, organization, the largest in the world, we need to really be applying these things at scale. And that's not happening fast enough. Yeah, so it's speed as always. Speed and scale. I think uh, this has been a great interview. Thank you for doing it. Did we miss anything? Any final words you want to say? Or I, I continue to believe that commercial technology is really going to be the core of defense innovation. You know, innovation is... Uh, such a broad word. If uh, Ash Carter were here in our conversation, I'd say you misnamed DIU. It really should have been Defense Commercial Technology Unit. That's really what we focus on. That's going to be so key to modernizing uh, a DOD. 11 of the 14 technologies that my boss, Heidi Hsu, has said are important to national security, things we would recognize, AI, cyber, autonomous capability, biotech. 11 of those 14, 80% of them are being developed commercially. They're not being developed by the defense enterprise. So if that much of the technology we need is being developed commercially, we need to have the efforts that DIU is pioneering on steroids. So speed and scale, critically important, and we just don't have enough emphasis on bringing in uh, that commercial technology into the military. Absolutely key to the modernization of uh, efforts we need. Well, I'm gonna conclude by saying you did a great job. DIU has been a real trailblazer. Uh, I think you've shown the way to go, and I hope we can. I hope we can take advantage of it. But uh, congratulations on your tenure. It was. Uh, I hope it was satisfying. Thank you, Jim. There's a lot more to do, but uh, <laughs> we certainly, I, I think, uh, have shown the way. So really appreciate your taking the time to highlight this in uh, in today's discussion. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.